0: Uh, this morning, we're back in our, uh, our chapter 5 of Nehemiah, in our study in the book of Nehemiah. Well, opposition is inevitable. It, it, it's regardless of what's happening in our lives as, we, as we're building along, as we're, as we're doing things, whether it be uh, within our own personal lives, within our marriages, within our families, uh, within the church body, within our communities, within our nation, there's opposition and there's there's difficulties. There are always things that we are needing to look to and overcome. And today we see um, kind of Nehemiah and his group uh, facing a new challenge. They they've faced challenges from the outside, from from uh, uh, from from the outside, from the enemy, from Sanballat and and his cohorts, and uh, and that actually uh, did something which which generally uh, attacks and affronts from the outside tend to unify us, when we're being attacked from, from the outside, we, we tends to bring us into a place really uh, of, of unity versus division, but really they face the most difficult uh, circumstances in this, in that now the divisions and the struggles are coming from within. And, and, and that's a reality in our lives. You see, see for us, the, the, some of the most difficult things come to us, not from the outside in, but from the inside, from within our marriages, within our families, within our churches, within our communities. So let's look into this. Chapter 5, verse 1. Now, there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, "...with our sons and our daughters we are many, so let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive." There were also those who said, "...we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine." And there were those who said, "...we have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is the flesh of our brothers, our children are as their children." Yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves, and some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but it is not in our power to help it, for other men have our fields and our vineyards. There's a number of struggles that are going on here. Um, Some people are just saying, look, there are many of us, we've come and we've come to work on this wall, and remember that the wall is this, the wall is a cause. The wall is not an industry. The people who have come to work on this wall are volunteering. And they're coming to volunteer and to help. And, and basically what's happening is because they, they aren't being attentive to uh, their, their their main jobs, they've probably left their farms or whatever that looks like to come and to work on the wall. They're actually starting to uh, be in need. They're, they're, they're hungry. And, and some people that have some means and some land they're they're actually having to because of there's a famine which is now another difficult thing that is going on. there's a famine in this land and and so some people are having to mortgage their places in order to provide and there's another problem which which maybe we can all relate to as well right and that's the king's tax right and 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 there's the, it becomes this insidiary thing sometimes that that can get in the middle of people's uh business and lives and uh cow herds or whatever that looks like, you can get really this bad thing, and it's called taxes that, that get into the middle of things. and can really cause a, a, a difficulty. One of the really hard things is that sometimes these king's taxes are, are things that are excessive in the lives of these people. Uh, so there's, so there's, there's these struggles that are going on, and how the people are being enslaved really by the interest. Let's go on. Let's look just a little bit more. Says uh, verse six, Nehemiah. I, Nehemiah, I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these and these words. I took counsel with myself and I brought charges against the nobles and officials. I said to them, You are exacting interest each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them and said to them, We, as far as we are able, have brought back have bought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nation. But you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. They were silent and could not find a word to say. So I said, the thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? Moreover, I, my brothers and my servants, are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest." Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, and their houses, and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you have been exacting from them. So again, here we are. And and now the, the people's plight has come to Nehemiah, and he is rightfully angered when he hears what is going on. Again, the people have left their fields and their, their farms, and they've come to work and to do this work, to, to be a part of this cause, and there are other people who have means who are taking advantage of the situation, who are actually using it to profit and taking uh, the things that, that, that they had. And so in, in the middle of this thing, there's a huge money problem that's going on, right? And, and money itself is fine. Uh, The the problem with money is is the holder of money, right? Money has no morality of its own. The morality of any money is in the person's heart that holds it and how they decide to spend it. Money in and of itself, wealth in and of of itself, there is nothing wrong with it and God does not condemn it. What he does condemn though and gives much warning about money is its propensity and power that it has to turn us away from God, to destroy us, to get us caught up, and, and to just get us to becoming a people who are just wanting to only serve our own needs and meet our own things. We become consumers to the nth degree, and we struggle that in our nation today, we don't leave margins in our lives for others. And God has called us, really, to be a people of generosity, a people who leave margins in our lives, not consuming everything for ourselves to the nth degree, but leaving a margin for those who, in different times or whatever that would look like, have a need. See, these guys were able to fend off the taunts and the threats of the enemy but now work has stopped on the wall. In chapter 5, there is no talk whatsoever of the wall being built. The wall has been, has been brought, the work on the wall has been brought to a stop, not by an external enemy, but because of inward strife. And as a church, I mean, we know this is, this is true, and this is the most dangerous thing that the church deals with. The, the, we're always worried about what the world's doing out there and what's going on out there and how things are getting messed up and screwed up and how maybe that's going to come and it's going to get us, but I can tell you now the most dangerous thing that the church faces is inward strife, is the struggle from within, It is division that happens from within because of different ideas and different thoughts. The wall is stopped here because of an internal strife. One of the reasons that that, uh, that Nehemiah gets so angry in this spot is because God has addressed this. In Leviticus chapter 25, God has given direction to his people concerning how to deal with these things. Leviticus 25 verse 17, You shall not wrong one another, but you shall fear your God, for I am the Lord your God. We should do these things and we should understand that we're not to be a people who are out to wrong one another. We're not to be a people who are to take advantage of people when they're struggling. We are to be a source of relief, not the pressure that's put on the world out there. And the reason that we do this too is is because of a fear of God. And when we talk about this idea of a fear of God, what it means is a right understanding of God. It means an awe and a respect of who God is. It means that we really get to understanding who really is the boss and who really owns it all. Again, we talked about this before. Many times our giving or where we sit in this, it becomes a matter of source. And when we respect God and we understand that it all comes from Him, that it all originates from Him, I don't care how smart you are, I don't care how talented you are, I don't care how successful you've been, if we don't really recognize that all of that has an origin and that origin is God and that He is the one who owns this thing. You see, see, the people weren't to ever just be taking of land from one another or taking advantage of one another because they were to recognize that the land actually belongs to God. It's His. And if it's his, therefore, it should change the way that I see it. If it's in my possession, then I need to recognize and see not that I'm the big deal, who's although I am a big deal, um, that, uh, that owns this thing, but that it really belongs to God. See, the earth, God owns the earth and all that it contains. Again, again, it's this, it's this idea of source, and I, 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 my analogy, you'll get tired of them, but, but again, it's, it's this idea of what is the source, and that really becomes this fundamental idea of, of how we deal with money and how we deal with people. If there was a kiosk up here, again, and this kiosk said, look, um, you come up to me, if you walk up to the kiosk, it's going to spit you $100 out, but here's the deal, here's the terms. You're going to take, you're going to leave some margin. You're going to take $10 and you're going to give it back. You're going to put it back in the kiosk, okay? How willing would you be to do that? Would you do it? Would you do it again and again and again, right? Of course you would. Why? Because you understand that the source of it would be this kiosk, right? That the source And because we recognize that the source isn't ourselves, we'd be more than willing to say, okay, here you go. I'll, I'll make that trade all day long. I'll make that trade. You see, and so, so it just becomes really this understanding of, of, of where our hearts are really positioned when it comes to things and stuff. And many times, and this is a struggle, and this is why the Bible deals with this on so many levels, and why there are so many warnings that are given to us. Now, in particular here, too, there are there's the, really these things that are coming, and it's uh, especially within the church. Oops sure you did that as soon as I hit it. Okay. Leviticus 25 going on. And again, 25 is dealing with this. How do you deal with this, this thing of your brothers? If your brother becomes poor and cannot maintain himself with you, you shall support him as though he were a stranger and a sojourner. And he shall live with you. Take no interest from him or profit, but fear your God that your brother may live beside you. You shall not lend him your money at interest, nor give him your food for profit." And so at the elementary level, now don't get me wrong, I do think that there, is, there are times and there are things and there are, there are places for interest and, and, and some of those kinds of things. But when somebody doesn't have their basic needs met, we're not supposed to be a people who are charging interest and taking advantage of that. We're supposed to be people who are helping them to get those needs met so that they're not trapped in cycles of poverty. That's the problem with payday loans, you know? These things are, this, it's called predatory lending, right? Credit cards can fall into this. It's the idea that we're going to exact such so much interest from somebody that ultimately it leaves them trapped in, in cycles of poverty. And you have to understand poverty. Poverty is it's a mindset. It's, it, it's a difficult thing to escape and to get out of. I grew up in a cycle, in a mindset of poverty. I understand what that looks like. I understand why people take and when they get a a $400 tax uh, return, why they go buy a big screen TV with it. You want to know why? It's because it's never there. It's never there. The opportunity to do that is never there. So when the opportunity comes, you don't do smart things like think about the future you just live in the moment and you're like it's now or never i got to get this thing or i'm never going to get this thing and so but things like payday loans don't help people to get out of these cycles of poverty as a matter of fact what they tend to do is they tend to help to trap people in cycles of poverty instead of helping them to get out. Now, don't get me wrong. Giving money is not the solution. And as a church, we don't approach that as that it's the solution to everything. We don't. We don't. Many times the solution is to not give someone money, okay? I, there, there's many times that that's the case. And we try to evaluate that as we try to, as a church, help people on this level, And and I want to just say, I'm just grateful. I'm grateful for you guys, and I'm grateful for the giving that goes on at this church because we are able to help people on a lot of levels, and sometimes very generously. As a matter of fact, the church so far this year, I'll tell you where we're at, we've given out in excess of $38,000 right now, and last year at this time, we'd done $23,000. As a matter of fact, we're over the top a little bit, and we've had to back off just because we have really but our community, there's a lot of needs out there. Again, we're not trying to meet every need or, or meet that with money, but we do want to be a source. We don't want to outsource to the government what the church is meant to do. This is what the church has done. The church has outsourced to the government the function of the church. But to be honest, to be able to do that, it requires a cooperative giving within the church body. It requires that because we, then we have more and we have this availability to go and to make a difference and to make a difference in people's lives. And it makes a difference to the world out there. Listen to this. Uh, uh, Let's see here. Where am I at? Uh, Nehemiah, uh, verse 9. So I said... The thing that you're doing, it's not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies, right? So the church is taunting. I mean, part of why we do this, too, and, and the reason that we need to do this is, is so that we have a good witness to, what, to, to the world out there. That, that when we're not doing this, if we're actually taking advantage of one another or we're taking advantage of the world or we're, we're purchasing things. See, the church is not business. Churches, I don't understand churches that start, okay, I get some of it. Maybe you buy a camp. Maybe you buy something like that. Maybe you do something, you purchase things that are in alignment with ministry and things like that. But when churches start big investment funds and, and, and purchasing uh, properties and all, I, I don't get that. We're, see, see, that's the wrong kingdom to investment right there. That's the wrong kind of invest, investment into the wrong kingdom. The kingdom that we're called to invest into is one where we, just, we have loose hands. We, 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 don't, we, don't, we, have, we keep a basic uh, amount of money that we're trying to kind of save just to be wise and so that we can do ministry. But, but we're not into like banking up big reserves around here. What comes in goes back out. And we're consistent to do that. And I'm not trying to pat us on the back. I'm just trying to talk about what the church ought to be and what that needs to look like. And we take care of a lot of needs within this church body too. And many times people will come and they'll be like, look, can I just, you know, I mean, if the church would lend me some money, I'm like, we don't lend money. (laughs) That's not what we do. We don't lend money. We give money. It's either a gift or it's nothing. It's, it's, that's the only there's, there's, there's nothing about that. There's never terms that we put on that. See, the people of God are to live in the fear of God, and we're to build a testimony of who God is, the generosity of God, the generosity of God's people, and the difference that we can make when we can live generously within the community. Giving. Like, oh, man, I knew it was coming. I knew it. You know, to be honest with you, I I will not be ashamed in this church to stand up here and talk about giving. I'm not going to shirk back about that. I know everybody's like, oh, I knew it. You just want our money. No, we don't want your money well we, we, we want to make a difference in the world out there, but I'm going to tell you this that God has a lot to say about giving, and what it's about is a blessing to you. Does God need your money? no, but what you need is to learn how to be a giver, and I need this same thing why because I'm selfish because i want to I want to just take it all in and and and, and go i want I want the best stuff I want the next thing but God is wants to put a stop on on that for me so that i'm not So that I and you are not uh, shackled to our money and to our bank accounts. So that we can live our lives with loose hands, when we can have just open hands. And when you can do that, you can have a completely different relationship with money. When our relationship with our money starts turning into a stewardship versus ownership, man, I tell you what, it's an alleviating, freeing kind of a thing. And this is the things that God wants to bring us into. 2 Corinthians, God is going to deal with his church about what giving looks like. Chapter 9, verses 6 through 8, the point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion. For God loves a cheerful giver, and God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. Our giving really is, is truly, it's an act of worship. It's, it's a place where, where this, and, and, and there's just this principle that God lays out here. You, you sow sparingly, you reap, you reap sparingly. You sow bountifully. You sow a lot of seeds, you get a bigger crop. You sow a few seeds, you get a smaller crop. It just makes sense. So God is got of Given us these basic these uh, these giving uh, overview and, and he says basically look it it should be it should look like this our giving should be generous it should be intentional it should be on purpose it shouldn't be it shouldn't be brought about by some kind of a feelings of guilt or any of that kind of stuff it shouldn't be because you know we get whipped into some kind of a frenzy it should be intentional we should just be a people who are intending to give it should be willing. It should be cheerful, right? And it should be in faith, trusting that God is able to multiply what we give. He just lays out these principles there, generous, intentional, willing, cheerful, and in faith. This is how God's church is supposed to give. Acts 2, when we look at Acts 2, we see that, that, that there was this amazing thing that had happened within God's church, Acts 2, the end of Acts 2, the fellowship of the believers. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, and all who believed were together and had all things in common And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. You see, the testimony of the church created something that was so uh, attractive to the world out there. That more and more and more and more wanted to be a part of it. They wanted to come and to be a part of something in which people actually began to care. Outside of themselves. Now don't get me wrong, there's a responsibility for each and every one of us to care for our own households. It's it's the place where it starts. And, and and some of that, even this picture within the wall and some of the needs could be because some people didn't care for their own households first. They didn't they didn't take the time and they just went and they, they thought it was maybe exciting to go build and, and they didn't deal with, with their responsibilities so what starts at home it starts with a responsibility but really where this ends up is that we should be a people who leave margins for God to work and leave margins for others there needs to be a place for God's people to recognize when we've had it when we've got enough and instead of just being something where it's just all incoming there becomes a place where there's some room and there's some outgoing and and this is part of what it would take to to, to see a drastic change in, in our world. You know, if the church gave, literally, it, 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 if the church began to tithe, uh, in general, I'm not talking about this church, I'm talking about in general, we, we, could, we would have a surplus of just billions of dollars after we had provided food, fresh water, and sanitation for the world. Literally, we could solve the problems of the world. You see, you can solve the, we can solve the problem of hunger by what we spend on ice cream, literally. It, it, it's not this thing that is so massive. Sometimes we look at it and we, we look at the whole big undertaking and we, it seems so large. But really what it looks like is when we all begin to participate, we all begin to have a kingdom mindset that is bigger than, than, than what our limited small view of life and the world tends to be. And we begin to live that way, like that, like that this isn't it, that there's more than this. God has called his people to be a community of givers, meeting one another's needs and helping to meet the needs of those outside of the church that they might see the love and the generosity of God. See, ultimately, this is what this is pointing to, is the generosity of Jesus who gave everything, who withheld nothing On our behalf, the ultimate picture of humility and generosity we see in Jesus. Verse 12. I thought he'd never quit. Verse 12. Then they said, We will restore these. And require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And I called the priests and made them swear to do as they had promised. I also shook out the fold of my garment and said, So may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen and praise the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. And so basically, Nehemiah called all of the people who had been doing this and saying, look, you're, you're charging interest, you're, you're, you're taking advantage of these other people's bad luck and their struggle. And let me just say that, you know, whenever we reach hard times in our world, if pe- the people who have means all of a sudden have great means and great opportunities before them because they have the ability to take advantage of the opportunities that are around them while others don't. And so he's saying, look, we can't do that, and he basically calls them into a kind of a whole legal assembly and brings the, the, the accusation, and he says, look, you've got to fear God, and you've got to do this in the right way, and we're not doing it in the right way, and we need to switch this up, and they did. And that's the really cool thing about this. In those verses, the, the, the guys that he was talking to were teachable, they were repentant, and they became accountable. They said, look, we will do exactly what was said. And Nehemiah said, look, we're bringing the priests in. We're going to make a promise. We're going to do all of this kind of stuff. And they became repentant and accountable they were teachable, and they said, you know what? You're right, basically. They looked at God's word, and, and, and again, you always have to look at God's word. Don't ever look at me or what I'm saying. What we have to do is we have to go back, and we have to look at God's word and say, how, how, does, how does my life stack up against this? And that's a really scary thing because it's going to fall so short of what this is, but begin this to understand that this stays the standard, and God has given us direction as to what that looks like the life of the believer, and in the church. You see, Jesus, he said this, for I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king, the king will answer them, truly, I say to you, as you did it to the one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. This is what Jesus says, is that, is that when we live like that, when we begin to recognize that, that the call on our lives is, is, the, is the care of others, it's, a, it, it, it's not a self-centered, but an others-centered life, and that we recognize and we leave margin and we're feeding the hungry and we're clothing people and we're meeting some needs and we're doing it even the least of these, not on any idea or, or, or premise of, of, of puffing ourselves up or, or getting prideful or, or, or putting on display for this just how good we are, but being a reflection of this God who has given so much for us, being a reflection of, of who He is and who His goodness is. Then we go on and we see Nehemiah, verse 14 Moreover, from that time, I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes the king, 12 years. Neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them for their daily ration 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people, but I did not do so because of the fear of God. I also persevered in the work on this wall, and we acquired no land, and all my servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, there were at my table 150 men, Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now what was prepared at my expense for each day was one ox and six choice sheep and birds and every 10 days all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet for all of this, I did not demand the food allowance of the governor because the service was too heavy on this people. And so we see that Nehemiah practices good leadership and that he doesn't do anything, doesn't put an expectation on the people that he's not willing to do himself. He, he lives this out. He walks this out. And he sacrifices personally in an area where he has a right. He has a right to the governor's tax. He has a right to these things. He, he, he could be in a spot where legally he's right, but the spirit of the law is telling Nehemiah something else, that I need to forsake that and not live into that. I need to put that aside and just provide this. I'm not going to take advantage of the people so that they can provide for my table. He's providing in in his own way. And for a lot of people, it says, 150 people every day are basically eating out of this. And Nehemiah is walking this out as a great example for his people. The leaders that are in the church should also uh, lead in that way never expecting anyone within the church to do something, never expecting people to sacrifice um, out of their time, their treasure, or their talent in a way that they themselves aren't willing to do it. It closes this way, verse 19. Uh, Nehemiah says, remember for my good, O God, all that I have done for this people. Kind of sounds kind of arrogant, maybe on the, on, on the backside, remember me for all the good that I did, God. But that, I don't think that's what Nehemiah is saying. The, the whole idea of remembrance and remember me has a very different connotation to these guys than what it, it seems to us. It seems to us to be kind of a, well, put me on the spotlight and give me all my points for all the good things. But, but to be remembered or to ask God to remember is to ask God to move in accordance to his promises on one's behalf. That's what we're talking about. There's a lot of times where we see this in the Bible, Psalm 40 or 74 four two. remember your congregation which you have purchased of old, which you have redeemed to be the tribe of your heritage. Remember Mount Zion where you have dwelt. Psalm 106 verse 4, remember me, O Lord, when you show favor to your people. Help me when you save them. It's this idea of remember us, God. Will you move in accordance to your promises and to your goodness on our behalf? We see this in Genesis 8, chapter 1, where there's a flood. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth and the waters subsided. God didn't need to remember. He doesn't have to remember, but it's this idea that helps us to understand that when God remembers, that He is still moving, and He is still moving in accordance to His promises. In this flood, it's, it's the ultimate in dark times. Uh, God has judged sin and he has preserved. He has closed Noah and his family up in this and he is saving them. And, and they're out in the middle of the, of the waves and what all is going on there. And, and they are at the mercy of God. But God didn't forget them, and God hasn't forgotten you either. Maybe today you feel like that. Maybe you feel like you're in the middle of a spot where where you're just stuck in this spot, and you're totally at God's uh, just whatever He wants. You're you're at His whim. God has not forgotten you, and God, when He remembers us, it's Him saying that He is going to move in accordance to His promises, to the things that He's promised. And we see this too that that God has caused this wind to blow over the earth, and 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 really, this is a picture of salvation. It's a picture of of who God is. It's it's God who's remembering. The ark is represents really salvation. It represents Jesus, and and this way in which we are carried through this storm. And when we can't see it, and we don't understand, and we do, and ask for the things that we're going through, that God is going to. Bring us through this. And then the wind that blows, the Holy Spirit so often is is referred to as the idea of of this wind. And we see this Father and the Son and the Spirit at work in salvation carrying us through this. Finally, Luke 23, 42. There's a thief on a cross. And I don't know what this guy had done. But he was getting the worst form of, of capital punishment that the Romans had. And there's a time within this that he, he, he makes a, a change. There are, there are three crosses, Jesus and two uh, of these criminals that are on the cross with him. And, and it's an interesting thing because one rejects him and one turns to him. And the one before his death, he just he simply goes over and he looks at Jesus and he says, will you remember me? Will you act in accordance to who you are and your promises on my behalf? Will you, will you, I'm seeing something in you. I'm recognizing that you really are a king and you really do have a kingdom. You really have something to offer me, even though externally, I can't, nobody can see it. You're dying. You're on a cross. You've got a crown of thorns. You're not in the middle of your wealth and your, and your prestige and all of those kinds of things. But he saw something. He came to understand something about Jesus, that Jesus could take him through what he was going and deliver him into something else. And he said, would you remember me when you come into your kingdom? Would you act on my behalf? Would you come into your kingdom? And Jesus' response to him was, I tell you the truth today in paradise. And that's the promise for every one of us who, who, who place our faith in Jesus. You see, God is shaking this world right now, but he's stirring his people, shaking the world stirring his people, reminding us, reminding the body of Christ of why we're here and what life is really about, helping us to understand that maybe, maybe it's not about all of the things that we've been wrapped up in and that, 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 we've, uh, that we've allowed ourselves to be really distracted with and things like that. Maybe there's a deeper and a higher calling that God is stirring in us, reminding us, I've called you to be my body to move as I'm moving on this earth, to move in cooperation to what I'm doing, to go and to make a difference in the world around you. And if maybe today you sit here and you've never made that decision, you've never trusted God and you're looking at the world around you and you're looking at the circumstances of life and everything and you're, you're going, what in the heck is going on in this world right now? Because this world is, is, is in a tailspin right now in a, in a rather large way. In the middle of that storm, you can always stop and you can look to Jesus and you can ask him to remember you. To, to act on your behalf according to his promise, because the promise is this. The promise is that he won't leave us in our sin, that, that he has made way, that even though we were lost and we were, we were trapped and we were, we were, uh, we were in sin and, and we deserved hell and death, that God didn't leave us in that place that he left everything. He left his privileged position. He left all of his well-being and everything behind. And he came and he entered into a human body because it was a human problem that had to be solved. It was a human problem, but it was only God that could solve it because the problem was so great. So only God could pay for the penalty of sin for all of the world, for all of humanity, and make available salvation. So that whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord, it says will be saved. It's really a simple thing. It's not a complicated thing. It's really about a heart that recognizes a need. It recognizes that it's a need that it can't fulfill. That, 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 that there's, a, there's a problem and that problem is within me. And then we come to believe that there's a solution. That Jesus and his death and his resurrection could change our lives. And that what we really need is the Holy Spirit, God, to come and live inside of us, which is the promise that when we receive, when we believe on Jesus, that we are adopted into God's family. And we are adopted into God's family. We're given the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit causes that spirit that was dead in us because of sin to come alive. We begin to hear and and, and get on a wavelength where we can communicate with God. We receive forgiveness for our sins, and we become a new creation. And change starts to happen in our lives, not from an external place, not from things on the outside or laws on the outside, but because of a change in our spirit and a change in what's going on, then it becomes an outflow out of our lives. God teaches us and helps us. With generosity. He teaches us and he, he helps us with the idea that I need, to, uh, I need to follow him. I need to just be rooted into him and allow him to work in and through me. And if you do that, I promise you, because it happened to me uh, 23 years ago, it'll change your life. It'll change your life in a big way. It won't be easy. As a matter of fact, I promise you this, it'll be the hardest thing that you ever take on. The hardest thing you ever aspire to do will be to follow Jesus. But it will be the best, most rewarding and the greatest adventure that you could ever go on. So if you've never done that, you've never trusted Jesus. I just want to tell you you can do that any time. You just get right before him. You just ask him. You admit that you're a sinner. You believe that he paid the penalty for your sin on the cross. And then you confess, you, 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 you receive that, you, you, you confess that he is Lord, that he is the king, that he is exactly who he says he is. And the Bible says if you do that from a right heart and a right position that way, that you'll be saved. Lord, I just thank you that you are good, that you are so generous, that your generosity is, is unbounded, that you've been so generous towards us and you've given us so much. And Lord, uh, we just pray that you would help us to be generous as well, to recognize that there's a high call in our lives, that, that there's a place where we could go, where we'd actually find it life-giving to be generous, to, to give, to, to extend ourselves, uh, to give time, to, to have margins in our life for somebody else, to not just run from thing to thing, to not just go from accomplishment to accomplishment, but, but to recognize that in, the, in between there, that there are things that we can live into that will really feed us, that will give us life, that will feed us in a way that, uh, that no food could ever feed us. That, that we could really be um, a spring, an outflow, a place where others come and they find relief and they find refreshment and they can find truth and they can find love and they can find support. So, Lord, you know how we are. You know where we're at. You know how hard this is for us, you know how difficult it is. You know how our hearts are just so easily distracted and taken to different places. But, God, we just ask that you would, you would help us to, to be focused on you and your goodness. Help us to focus on what you're calling us to today and help us to leave room for somebody else. God, help us that we wouldn't be the people who just rush past everyone who needs help and just blame them. Help us to recognize that you're calling us to be part of solutions in this world. We give you praise. We give you glory. We are so grateful for how you've lavished on us every good thing, that you're the father of lights, that in you there is no variation or shifting of shadow, and that every good and perfect gift has come from you. You're the source of all goodness, and we give you all honor here. In Jesus' name, amen.